Welcome and happy Monday. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, and it is a fabulous Monday afternoon. My main man, my sidekick, Uncle Jimmy, still battling, still wrestling with COVID-19. I will tell you, though, he's doing better. I feel confident that he's going to recover from this and that he is recovering. And there's a chance maybe next week we'll let him come back to work. We will see. Uh, But listen, despite Jimmy's absence and despite just being me solo today, I have a fantastic show planned for you. Professor D. Delano Squires, he's going to join us uh, at the top of the program after I set the world on fire. He's going to be followed by our man Greg Couch in Chicago, who's written a column about uh, the Little League World Series and that it's no longer warm, fuzzy and cute anymore and that we're actually exploiting kids. I'll let him explain later in the show. And then we're going to end the show with uh, we're going to be visited by author and big, huge defender of Christianity. Uh, Author Larry Taunton is going to join the show. He wrote a uh, tweet thread over the weekend about homeschooling and he and his wife's decision to homeschool their kids. I found the whole thread was like 16 tweets. It was all fascinating. I'm going to let him explain and talk to you all about why he made the decision to homeschool and why it might be the right move for you and your family. But first, I'm going to start a fire, a big one. One of my most vivid memories of childhood is walking down my neighborhood street and telling my best friend, Butch, that I wanted to be the next Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. It was the mid 1970s. I was eight or nine years old. Me and my older brother and mom lived at 3920 Grand Avenue in a two-bedroom flat on the east side of inner city Indianapolis. The 650-square-foot apartment cost $75 a month. My parents had divorced four years prior. My mom worked as an hourly employee at Western Electric, earning roughly $6 an hour as a factory worker. We were poor. I fit the profile for trouble. Big and athletic, I had a penchant for shoplifting, mischief, and fighting. Luckily, I was tugged by the culture. Dr. King's legacy and shadow ruled the culture at that time. I wanted to be Dr. King. I wanted to wear a suit and tie and command the attention and respect of the world. From my all-black ghetto setting, I dreamed of furthering his dream of creating a society that reflected the kingdom promised by an allegiance to God and America's founding documents. That was the culture that influenced me. That culture blinded me to my impoverished circumstances, inspired me to see a world of limitless possibilities, and demanded that I capitalize on my parents and their generation's sacrifice. Today's culture baffles me, all of it, but most especially the culture corporate media frame as black. Yes, uh, not yesterday, last week, I wrote about celebrity entertainer Nick Cannon's appearance on the popular urban radio TV show, The Breakfast Club. During the interview, Cannon justified his irresponsible seven kids with four women family life by insinuating the nuclear traditional family is a racist, Eurocentric approach to life. 
He placed all responsibility for his family structure on the women he bedded. Cannon's interview helped me understand how distant I am from modern black culture, which is just an outgrowth of liberal political manipulation through the adoption of critical race theory as a guiding worldview. The culture is secular. It attributes the behavior and outcomes of black people solely to white people. In modern culture, men are weak, women are leaders, black people are not responsible for our destiny, the N-word is a term of endearment, and most importantly, blackness is defined by political affiliation. Joe Biden said it best, you ain't black if you ain't a Democrat. I reject it all. I'm not weak. I believe in the patriarchy. I'm responsible for my destiny and outcome. The N-word, regardless of the speaker's color or pronunciation, is disrespectful and harmful. I'm a lifelong non-voter and refuse a political identity. This new culture assigned to black people by Hollywood, academic, political, athletic, and literary elites has demonized the tactics Dr. King used to expand freedom to African-Americans. The strategic, nonviolent, dignified approach of the civil rights movement is now ridiculed as respectability politics. George Floyd, a career criminal and drug addict, has been substituted for Rosa Parks. Skinny jeans worn lower than boxer shorts and wife beaters have replaced suits and ties. I'm an old man struggling to deal with change. But you will never, you will never convince me that respect, a dignified appearance, and a reputation free of criminality will go out of style or lose their effectiveness. Rather than capitalize on the sacrifices of its American ancestors, from Thomas Jefferson to Frederick Douglass to Abraham Lincoln to Booker T. Washington to Dr. King, Modern culture looks to exploit and or diminish those sacrifices with a fraudulent, self-aggrandizing imitation. Self-aggrandizement means to aggressively increase one's power and wealth by any means necessary. Modern culture perfectly reflects the selfie generation. The generation mimicking Dr. King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, Medgar Evers, John and Bobby Kennedy, they're doing it for power and wealth. LeBron James poses as an activist to enrich his primary employer, Nike. Sean King poses as a black man and activist to enrich himself. The NFL and NBA embraced Black Lives Matter to secure sponsorship from major global corporations. Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris pretend that requiring government-issued identification to vote is Jim Crow 2.0 as a means to maintain their power. Nick Cannon blames racism for his dysfunctional family structure as a means to protect his reputation and rationalize his irresponsibility. Colin Kaepernick took a knee and quit football because he wasn't man enough to accept his uncanny athleticism could no longer mask his immature approach to preparation and leadership. Maria Taylor, 
She couldn't get the contract she wanted from ESPN. So she claimed Drew Brees, Dave Lamont, Rachel Nichols, and the bosses who fast-tracked her career, yeah, they were all racist. I'm all for power and wealth. There's nothing wrong with pursuing it. But when your tactics mirror Confederate President Jefferson Davis's race-based strategy, yeah, I find it offensive when you cast yourself as the woke Martin Luther King Jr. Now, you're just a bigot promoting a culture that leads to a separate and unequal country. That's my fire for today. We're gonna roll out to Washington, D.C. and bring in the smartest man on the show, Delano Squires, get his reaction. And Delano, I wanna, I wanna start here. I think what I was feeling as I was writing this and what I was trying to get off my chest is like, man, I'm completely detached from the culture the mainstream media and Hollywood have defined as black, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. I, 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 tell me how I should feel about it, or t do I sound uh, crazy or misguided for feeling detached from a culture that I, I, I just don't recognize as something I want to be a part of? The funny thing, Jason, is I've, I've felt the exact same way. Um, when I look at, you know, many of the black elites, whether it's the leaders of um, BLM or elected officials or uh, actors and actresses in Hollywood, rappers, um, artists, athletes, the values that, are, that they espouse are completely contradic contradictory to the ones that I espouse. So, um, you know, I, I'm thinking back to when ABC ran that special on Soul, called Soul of a Nation, and they were talking about the black experience in America today, it just, very little of it actually resonated with me. The parts that were historical, I, I got and I understood, but in terms of the types of things that consume um, the modern talent intent, they just aren't things that, um, that I agree with or that I endorse or that I co-sign. And in, in your article, you, you use the term respectability politics, and that's a term that they use often and to them, respectability politics is about black people carrying themselves in a certain way, dressing, speaking a certain way, in order to appeal to the sensibilities of white people. So the thought is, if we carry ourselves in a certain way, white people would have more respect for us, they would see us as more human, and therefore they would treat us better. Um, now, I'm not sure how people thought about that in the 60s and 70s, but today, if, if, if we are, as two black men talking about the ways in which we would like to see our communities change and how we carry ourselves, the values that we espouse, those things are about us, right? Self-respect is just that, it's self-respect. It's not about trying to get someone else to feel better about you because at the end of the day, if you don't have any, any sense of dignity or any sense of self-respect, it doesn't matter what other people tell you or how they feel about you. Um, you are always going to be um, like a like a, a boat, you know, leaking vessel. So no matter how much water they pour in, it's just gonna fall right out. And that's that's how I feel oftentimes when I listen to and, and see the way the black elite operates in, in today's America. You you mentioned or honed in on respectability politics and I'm glad you did because I, I've just 
The, the thing that baffles me is the effectiveness of what Dr. King and these guys accomplished through their strategy and tactics. And so I don't think when, when you're asking a country to, hey, treat me with respect, I don't think there's any flaw in, in presenting yourself in a very respectful manner. And mm -hmm. that approach, what it did, and it's like we're diminishing this, is, is black men and women presenting themselves in a respectful fashion and then contrasted with Southern white people letting dogs and water hoses loose on these people, beating them with batons, dragging them out of uh, lunch counters and restaurants and things like that. That contrast was just overwhelming and, and shocked and shook up the world and caused America to have to address the unequal treatment they were giving black people. And so I, I hear these guys saying like, we, we, we wanna re reject this successful strategy and I'll make a sports analogy. It's like uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl last year with an offensive style built around Tom Brady. This is almost like saying, you know what? They should build the offense around somebody else this year. Don't do it again with Tom Brady. I know it worked and won the Super Bowl, but you should really go to the run and shoot or an option offense. Uh, we no longer respect uh, the way Tom Brady won a Super Bowl. I, I just whether Dr. King and these guys were right or wrong, or whether every, they achieved everything they wanted, I, I'm just sorry they. They got us the right to vote. They got us access to the schools and educational systems that our taxes actually funded. They created a bunch of free, they expanded freedom for us. It was a successful strategy and tactic. Right. I don't understand why we're now trying to demonize and disavow it. I don't either. I think part of it is um, in, in the current sort of civil rights, quote unquote, iteration um, you know, sort of in the BLM era, I think anything that they see as normative, anything that they see as traditional, um, they think should be torn down and abandoned and dismantled. Um, my sense, if I had to guess, they would probably say that the, the way that the King generation carried itself is rooted in notions of, you know, white supremacy, that black people dressing a certain way, speaking a certain way, um, you know, is, is all about, again, appealing to the sensibilities of the dominant culture. And to your point, I think it just shows how bankrupt, how morally bankrupt and intellectually bankrupt um, this movement and, and the civil rights industry um, has become. Because my sense has always been, and I agree, I agree with your assessment in terms of if, if, you, if, you're, if you want um, the country to treat you a particular way, with respect and dignity, you show that you have it for yourself. But I never got the sense that when the cameras went off, you know, Dr. King unhitched his belt, let his pants sag, and, and you know, started throwing around F-bombs, and, and that the women started, uh, you know, whether it's Diane Nash or Coretta Scott King or, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, that they started twerking when the cameras weren't on. I didn't get the sense that that's the type of people that they were. Because the sense that I got is that they acted in a way that was reflective of how they saw themselves as, as 
creations of God made in his image and likeness and that the respect that emanated from them was a sense of respect that started on the inside. And oftentimes you'll see this, it doesn't matter you know, what country, what community, the things that are on the inside always come out. People can, can hide for a little bit, but eventually, you know, um, th- that, that, that sense of inner dignity, that sense of inner peace always comes out. So in, in many respects, as I said, this current civil rights generation, uh, or, you know, the Sean Kings, as I said, um, the BLMs, the, the Colin Kaepernicks, they're missing that key element of, of dignity and respect. And it's not just, the biggest part of it is not how they dress, how they carry themselves. The biggest part of it is that their appeals are always to the sensibilities of white people. And they assign to black folks, the same people that they say they're fighting for, they assign to us a lesser form of humanity than they do to white people. Because for us, um, they treat us as objects, people um, to whom things are done. They treat white people as subjects and, and subjects of their own agency. So white people do, black people are done too. White people have agency, black people are controlled entirely by their environment. Um, white people can choose to do good or bad, black people are confined to whatever systems we find ourselves in. And that to me is probably the worst part of um, a move away from dignity, self-respect and agency to one in which all of our problems are characterized as uh, institutional or systemic in nature. I, I wanna go back at your point that Dr. King, Coretta Scott King, Diane Nash, Rosa Parks, what they were like out of the public spotlight. And and, and I want to address this, and I want to be careful, but again, there's a lot of FBI information about Dr. Mm -hmm. King, and and not all of it is flattering. And so right there in your city, there was a legendary basketball coach, John Thompson. Mm -hmm. And John Thompson uh, had a great saying and philosophy about himself and all public figures, and, and, and I think it applies to everybody. John Thompson said he has a public life, he has a personal life, and he has a private life. Mm. And each one of them are different. And I don't think, this all relates to being pragmatic and strategic in terms of what Dr. King and that generation and just what wise people people that are serious about promoting progress or pushing for, uh, advocating for things in their best interest, they're very pragmatic. And so what I see from Dr. King, they had a public life, a way they wanted to present themselves in public. They certainly had a, a, a private life amongst their family and friends. And then they had a private life that we all have, and, and we mm-hmm. all have our secrets and all three. And so, and that's not to defend sin or, or debauchery or any of that, but all human beings have these three elements. And so there's, what we have done is we have put everybody's private life, we've melded all, private, mm-hmm. personal, and public are all one thing. And so, 
You, in order to live this life that the left is promoting and these godless people are promoting, you, your private life needs to be a spouse for everyone to see and be on display. And, and there is no public life. There is no private life. There is no personal life. It's all the same thing. And this is just unhealthy. It, it, it's a, and it doesn't, if everybody knew everything about me, and, and I live more transparently than most, but I don't blame people that live more privately and, 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 and keep their, their lifestyle more secretive or amongst themselves. But if everybody wants to live their private life out in public for all to see, none of us are gonna have any respect for each other. Because, sure. it, you know, it's, it's no different than if I was sitting here digging my finger in my nose right now. It's like, do I pick boogers out of my nose? Yes. I need to do it at home in private. If I started farting out here, do I fart? Yes, we all do. But it's not meant for, it's not good public behavior. So we tend to hold our farts and, you know, that's, right. I, I look at these, it's like a group of idiots that don't, understand strategy and pragmatism and, and just anything goes and anything you do. If I'm shouting the N word and it's this debauchery and degeneracies in every form of music that I put out and I dance to and, and I'm making music about WAP and all that. No, no, none of that reflects on my character. That's, that's what I really think we all Delano and Jason Whitlock, they like sex. Why shouldn't they just put it on display for everybody? Right, right. You just can't have a real, a, a well-run, respectful society if that's the case. Yeah, there's, there's so much to, to say in response to that. I'll, I'll, I'll go a couple of directions, right? One, um, I definitely agree with your, your point in terms of people having a public life, a personal life, and a private life, right? So when I hear that, I think biblically, at the end of the day, we're all going to have to stand, um, you know, in judgment for the things that we've done. Because um, as a Christian, I believe that God sees all of it. So we can't hide from him. We can hide from each other and, and you know, we can keep some things from one another, but we can't we can't hide from from God's eyes. That's one part. The second part is the public life does matter. And it matters because what you incentivize, you get more of, and what you penalize, you get less of. Anyone who's, you know, either been a parent or a child, so everyone has, has learned that lesson. Um, if you bring home a 95 on your report card and your parents, you know, buy you a new pair of sneakers, you say, oh, great. I'll try to shoot for 95s more often. Um, but if you bring home a 65 and they bring you and they buy you a pair of new sneakers, they'll get more 65s. And if you know all it takes is a 65, then there's no reason to, to shoot for a 95. So w I think what happened in our community and, and more broadly speaking is that as more and more behaviors have been accepted and tolerated in society and the concept of shame and when I say shame, I want to be specific. I'm not talking about shaming people for things that they've already done. I'm talking about shame as a prophylactic, as a preventative measure. So if you're a kid and you're coming home on the bus after school and you're cutting up with your friends 
and you see an older person get on, you say, okay, come on, chill out, guys. You know, because there's part of you that says, I don't want to represent myself and my family in a particular way. We've lost all notion of that type of shame because, as you said, now everything goes. And the people who are shamed are the people who call out this type of behavior. So whether you're a person that sees, you know, Lizzo go to a Lakers game with her backside exposed and you comment on it publicly, you would be the person that's shamed and you would say, and people would say that you are trying to fat shame Lizzo and because of that you're a bad person. When in reality you're just saying certain types of clothing is not appropriate in, in certain settings. Um, so I think as a society, we have totally gotten rid of the concept of shame. It has totally unleashed all and every type of behavior into the public sphere. And particularly in our community, as it, as it relates to, you know, the type of culture that's packaged as quote unquote black culture, um, you even see it in, in some of our elders, right? I remember, um, a, c- a couple months back when Megan Thee Stallion was having a conversation with Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Um, Congresswoman Waters got to the point where she was talking about the song WAP and you could see Megan Thee Stallion's face change and and I recognized it. She was reacting as uh, um, a grandchild would when they know they're about to be chastised by their grandparent. But instead of Maxine Waters saying, you know what, that's, that's, baby, that's a little bit too much. We don't need to do all that. She said, no, I love it. it's, It's empowering because back in the day, it was the men who had the women dancing around half naked, but now the women are empowered. And I, I think it just goes to show how, how complete that slide into debauchery, degeneracy, and dysfunction has been in many aspects of sort of popular black culture. Because even our elders, our people who know better, um, feel afraid or intimidated either to correct certain behaviors um, or even to address them, you know, more generally speaking. Delano, uh, this lack of shame that, that you talked about, uh, I, I'll apply it to, to Nick Cannon. Seven kids, four, four, four different women. He's got no shame about it. The culture has no mm-hmm. shame about it. That's, hey, that's racist if you have a problem with it. You know, you've got a Eurocentric point of view. I, I'm, you know, we are from someplace else and you know, we're supposed to just spread our seed wildly, indiscriminately, and be part-time parents. But if I were to summarize all of what we're talking about, what we're really talking about is the elimination of anything regarded as sin. Just, there is no sin. Anything that you desire, anything that you want to do is a-okay. And it's, you know, I think, and you'd like to say this all the time, and and I agree, it's very clever, short of voting for Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. you can do anything and it will be justified in America. Any kind of sexual desire you have, live it out, make videos about it. If you want to go to hell and, and give Satan a lap dance, do it. I just watched the commercial uh, this weekend, I think on ESPN or, or somewhere, national sporting event going on, and and there was this long uh, little Nas X commercial, and and I'm like, Whoa. and it was I think it was it was yeah it was called Defy Logic, and they were basically 
saying to young people, do, do, every, do anything to defy logic. Just, just do it all. Live without sin, regret, shame, anything. You, we will celebrate it. And, and it's like I'm watching this and, and I'm like, man, we are creating a satanic culture. That's the mm. only way I can describe it and understand it is, is we're telling young people and everybody, put your sin on public display. Yeah. I mean, in many respects, and again, I, I know you and I agree that what we're talking about is not the sum total of quote unquote black culture, right? Because from 1619 forward, that encapsulates you know, Douglas and Washington and Parks and Mary McLeod Bethune and King and all these other, you know, luminaries. It also encompasses blues music and jazz and gospel and and, and Marian Anderson at the at the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, black culture is is rich. There's a rich tapestry in this country of the contributions that black Americans have made. But in this current iteration, and I would say this has been, you know, ascending since let's say nineteen ninety. Right, so the better part of the last 30 years, um, what we see is rewards, both socially, culturally, and financially, for people who promote um, death and destruction, who promote drug abuse, who promote the degradation of women. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's it can't be overstated how significant it was for one of the only interviews that Joe Biden did as a candidate, right, in black media, quote unquote, was with Cardi B after she put out the song WAP. And that signal is clear. If you engage in this type of behavior, you'll, you will be rewarded by the culture. Um, now, again, th this has been going on for quite some time, so I'm not blaming Joe Biden for it. But we're at a point where that particular iteration of black culture, that, that specific strain of it, really is in a death spiral. And we need someone like Denzel Washington's character from Flight to really pull the plane up. And he may have to turn it you know, on its head and, and do an emergency landing, you know, fly over the people who are being baptized and crash it in a field because if if we if we don't, it's gonna end just like the opening scene in Dark Knight Rises, where the people promoting it, they're gonna get ejected, they're gonna go on to their you know, safe passage in another plane, and everybody that's on the plane, the passengers, and we're all passengers, we're the ones that are gonna crash in that field and uh, and and burn. So, I, to me, the m the most important thing that we could see, and again, in this particular iteration of black culture is a complete 180 in the types of values, morals, and ethical behavior that we accept and tolerate. Um, and the people who promote the type of, as I said, dysfunction and degeneracy that we're talking about, we need to put them out. Um, because we need to, to start policing our own borders and the borders can't be drawn on ideological lines. It shouldn't be that someone you know, Cardi B and, and Megan Thee Stallion can simulate a sex act on national TV and they are considered acceptable. But if someone says, you know, they, they have a favorable view of Clarence Thomas, 
that they are deemed outside the culture. And, and we have been sowing those seeds for a long time. And I, th- I think you're starting to see that, that we're reaping a harvest and it's, it's not the type of produce that, that we want. We'll end on this. I, I was thinking about your point about Joe Biden interviewing with Cardi B. He also did the interview with Charlemagne the God, hip hop right. DJ, where, you know, you ain't black if you don't vote for, for Joe Biden. And I'm sitting here going, Hey, man, it wasn't in 2008 when Obama ran. He had to interview with Ed Gordon or Tavis, like legitimate black journalists. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they were the gatekeepers and the 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 gatekeepers to the black community and, and the way you got a message across. Now it's rappers and rap mm-hmm. DJs. It's, it's, it's Charlemagne the lesser charge, as Kwame Brown <laughs> says. He, he's now interviewing presidents or potential mm-hmm. presidents, and Cardi B is, and, and w- no one's objecting in terms of, and I guess anybody listening can hear my frustration. It, it, it's like, I started out 50 years ago Man, I want to be Martin Luther King. Mm. And they've made Martin Luther King completely out of style and irrelevant. I would have been better off dreaming about being Shaft or mm. uh, am I thinking of the right? <laughs> Dolomite. Dolomite or no, I'm thinking there's Shaft and there's somebody else. Uh, mm. Who's the pusher man? Was it Shaft? Who made the uh, uh, they made the song? Mm. Marvin Gaye had the song. I'm your pusher man. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I literally I, I'm just like, wow, they've they've hijacked the culture to such a degree that I guess what I'm complaining about is like I'm completely out of style and yeah. a style that promotes the death of black people is what is in style. And, and I, I'll, I'll end here, Delano, I'll let you go. I'll just share a brief story. We had the comedian Jay Flake sit in for Uncle Jimmy for a couple of days last week. He sent me a very nice note yesterday about his experience. And, but he shared with me that he caught heat for coming on the show. Mm. And, and people were critical of him. Oh, how could you do that show? And, and, and I said to Jay Flake, I was like, are they looking at this show? Do they not see Uncle Jimmy Delano? Uh, are, are, did, did they not look at my previous shows? Speak for yourself, Marcellus Wiley, Lavar Arrington, T.J. Hoosman. Did they? Did, are they unaware of, like the undefeated and who started that and and why it was started? And, and I'm like, Jay, man, they would have a much better chance of getting a job and an opportunity from me mm. than all of these alleged people that they're in support of. But. You've you've done a bad thing coming on this show, and he he acknowledged. He goes, man, I put no stipulations on him in terms. Man, say whatever you think, whatever you believe. Uh, You know, I can care less. Uh, We can disagree, any of that. But I told D.L. Hughley's a big critic of mine, and a lot of these other comedians are always want uh, D.L. as I call him, down low Hughley. Uh, But. I'm sorry. <laughs> he forced that out of me. You don't have to respond to that, but if you have a closing statement, say it, I'm going to let yeah. you go. 
So, so I think um, that that quote from John Thompson was so powerful in terms of the public life, the personal life, and the private life, because I think you see that replicated even within the black community. And one of the phenomena that I found that's actually quite prevalent is that in private, black folk will talk the way we talk, right? They'll espouse the same type of views. They'll be married and have their children. They'll say, I don't let my kids listen to certain types of hip hop. They'll question, you know, why is Cardi B so popular? And, and they'll talk about the influence she has on, on teenage girls. It's only when those conversations go public that you'll see the same people either not say anything or they may actually criticize. And, and it's, 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 um, it's led to a sort of cultural schizophrenia in which we're saying one thing amongst each other when we're at the barbershop or the cookout or a family dinner, but as soon as it goes public, we act like you know we don't know what people like me or you are saying. And I think it's made progress in those areas very, very difficult because my, from my experience, um, black folk that I know, and I, I'm talking about all different types of education levels and ages, um, religious beliefs tend to be more socially conservative than our voting patterns would suggest. There's a lot of things that we may say, oh, it's no big deal, live and let live. But when you ask somebody, would you want that in your house? They'll respond, oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't want my, my daughters on the pole. But they feel like they have to um, make room for it or excuse it because they don't want to be seen as judgmental or, or shaming people, so to speak. So um, I think until, until we get that particular dynamic under control, we're going to continue to see this, this dichotomy between um, sort of the black public life and private life in our community. Delano, you've taken me to another point that I'm not going to let you run out on now that you've, <laughs> you've taken me here. Uh, what you just described to me is the biblical story about Satan telling uh, God, oh, I can make any of these people deny you. Mm. It's very easy. And so what, what you just basically described is that in private, we will espouse beliefs that are biblically sound, reflect our upbringing and the values that our parents and grandparents instilled in us. But out in public, we'll deny it all. And mm -hmm. when we get to that voting booth, we'll deny every bit of biblical teaching uh, that, that we've been instilled with and pull that level lever in objection to all of it. And so it's really a denial of Jesus. It's, it's, it's really, mm -hmm. you know, publicly, we will deny Jesus and invalidate our alleged belief and our alleged faith uh, because when push comes to shove, when, 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 they, when they come, and it, we're going to probably get to that day, as long as the way this Marxism is, is running out of control, and we're going to see a lot of people that spend a lot of Sundays in church, a lot of Wednesdays mm -hmm. in church, but when they put that gun to their head, they're going to deny. Oh, I don't mm -hmm. believe in that shit. Are you kidding right. me? <laughs> and, right. and that will be that. And, and, and I like to believe, oh, they're going to have to shoot me in the head. Mm. And and I try to live a life that says, now nah, you're going to have to shoot Whitlock. And that's why they keep shooting at me. Thank you, Delano. Mm. Thank you. Excellent stuff. Appreciate it. All right. Built Bar. Great flavor. Check. 
Low in calories. Check. A variety of flavors to pick from. Check. The best protein bar in the business. Check, check, check. I just had one before the start of this show. I worked out this morning. Uh, I've been, you know, as I told you all, I shared last week, Uncle Jimmy's battle with COVID has shaken me to my core. I'm addressing my weight issue, and Built Bar is a big part of that. Low in carbs, calories, and sugars, Built Bars have phenomenal taste, unlike their competitors. But don't just take my word for it. Try them for yourself. Go to Built.com and use promo code FEARLESS to save 15% off your first order. Use promo code FEARLESS for 15% off at Built.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. No Uncle Jimmy. He's still battling COVID. Hopefully we'll get him back next week. All right. Uncle Jimmy's favorite columnist, though, doesn't have COVID. He's in Chicago. He watched the Little League World Series this weekend and had a fascinating take. Greg Couch, uh, welcome to the show. And, And tell us what struck you about the Little League World Series and why you're a bit critical now of the relationship between Little League Baseball and ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports. Yeah, I turn it on Sunday morning and I'm watching the Little League World Series, the the trip, you know, the road to the World Series. And what happens is they announce the winner gets to punch their ticket to Williamsport and the loser has to go home and go to school. And my first thought is, well, that's a heck of a message to send kids. Loser, school, school, loser. That's That's an interesting combination. But I really kind of got repulsed a little bit watching as the day went on because they were giving nicknames to these kids and promoting them like superstars. And the one kid was named Matty Ice. That was his nickname, I remember. And the kid hit a home run and he's running around the bases and he sort of sort of raises a, his sort of peacocks his way across home plate, high stepping it. He takes off his helmet so people could see him on TV. And all I know is that in my day, <laughs> well, as an old person would say, if someone did that on my team, we'd take him aside and sort of calmly, you know, explain to him that that's not the way we want people to behave, you know. So I just feel like watching these kids and thinking in terms of the Olympics, when we just saw Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and a lot of these other young swimmers also sort of burned out, fried mentally and talking about mental health issues. And I think this is sort of where it begins. We're taking little kids and turning them into professionals. I mean, we're taking a a screwdriver and sticking it into the electrical socket of their childhood and just short circuiting them. And it's really an ugly thing to do, and I think it's a a big mistake. And I think it's a little bit the same as what we saw with the Olympics and what we saw with college sports, where people just got hung up on the the TV money. You know, the, the Olympics had this ideal of amateurism, and then they got hung up on TV money, and they got greedy and took as much as they could, and they ruined the entire thing. And the same thing is happening with college football. And, and now we're doing it with Little League Baseball. You know, in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, they used to just show one game on TV, and that was it, one game. And now we're up to ESPN's got it. We've got 30 games on ESPN, ESPN Deporte, ESPN2, ABC, and these guys are just little professionals. And I think it really factors into their brains, and we're, we're, we're really hurting these kids by over-amping them and having them do everything they do in front of the world, in front of, on, on camera. So I think it really just sort of kind of grossed me out. In fact, I don't really even like the idea that 11- and 12-year-old boys are serving as our entertainment in the first place. I'm going to tell you, one of the points you made in the column that resonated with me is that they're just, they're, we're turning them into child 
television stars. And we've been doing this to all of athletics. Uh, basically, LeBron James at 17, 18 years old, television star. No different than Todd Bridges or any of the other TV stars that we all see crash and burn. That they, they, We think they're warm and cuddly, and then the next thing you know, Macaulay Coughlin has a drug problem. Uh, and, and now, basically, what you're saying is the Little League World Series is the beginning of that, and it's everybody can make a profit off these kids. It's a nice little warm and fuzzy, cuddly story, but times have changed so dramatically and, and, and now, because one of the, I loved how you brought Monet Davis, if you guys remember from 2014, she was a little black girl that pitched in the Little League World Series and had great success. And, and you made the point that now she would be a name, image, and likeness star, maybe as big as Bryce Young, the Alabama quarterback. Yeah, she would. And that was only seven years ago. So you can see how much more air they keep pumping into the balloons of these kids. You know, and what you're talking about is right with these Hollywood kids. I don't really understand what's happening. It's just the parents seem to get uh, they want to live their lives, their dreams through their kids or or maybe they're just not thinking about what their children should be doing. To, you know, kids should be in the backyard climbing trees. Right. I mean, they should be you know, playing on a swing set or playing in a sandbox. Do they even have sandboxes anymore? And I don't think we should really be focusing, forcing our kids to be professional athletes or professionals at all when they're children. It's it's even a little bit like they should be, you know, maybe reading uh, liberal arts. They should be li- reading novels. They should be sort of understanding broad pictures of empathy and how to behave as a human being. We're not teaching them any of those things. We're not teaching them how to culp, cu- how to cope with with things and how to behave when things are going wrong in their lives. They're just. They're made professionals, they're treated like superstars, and then they're burning out from the time they're 10, 11 years old, maybe even before that, because, you know, as you pointed out, you know, a nine-year-old baseball player, you know, they're already traveling teams in the summer and playing 50 games, and there's no normal childhood. We've just sort of erased the childhood and then expect them when they're adults to already be adults, and they're not gonna be adults. There was no process of growth as human beings. So yeah, I think it's really disgusting and it works that way in sports. And like you said, it works that way in Hollywood with actors. Well, the thing that I think is different, because I'm telling you, as a kid, you couldn't get me off the football field, you couldn't get me off the basketball court, you couldn't get me from playing baseball in the backyard. Recess, I wanted to play dodgeball every day. Those were all my priorities. And the difference, though, is I think now everything has more importance, more weight to it. Because everybody, I wasn't chasing money. When I was a kid thinking about playing football and wanting to be in the NFL Hall of Fame, it wasn't about being super rich and acquiring enough wealth for my parents to retire and to take care of my whole family. And and there was no one there documenting everything that I did. Some things to me are meant to be forgotten. Not everything is meant to be documented and posted over Facebook, posted over Instagram, placed on TikTok. And that we've placed these kids under a microscope and it's almost like the Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show. Right. These kids are pr- participating 
in a Truman Show, and we wonder why Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, cracked? They've been living a Truman Show since age five or six. Exactly, exactly right. And you, there's, like I said, there's no chance to learn how to cope with things. There's no chance, you know, Tiger Woods, I mean, everything that was hand, everything in his life was handed to him other than how to play golf. And, and that was what his focus was his entire childhood, golf, golf, golf. And yeah, he turned out to be a great golfer. And I think a lot of parents today look at Earl Woods or look at Richard Williams, uh, Venus and Serena's dad, and say, wow, look at that. They grew their kids into millionaire athletes. Let's do that. And the Williams sisters did come out very well, actually. But look what happened with Tiger. I mean, look, he, he didn't know how to deal with his, his life at all. He didn't know what he was doing, how to cope with being married. He didn't know how to cope with having women all over him. He didn't know how to cope at all. He just There was no normal childhood. And then from there, you know, there's no normal adulthood. And you're right. You have to be able to to stumble and fall and, and hit your head uh, without the whole world seeing it and making fun of you for it every minute of the day, because then you start acting tense and tight and you can't, you can't behave freely and, and really learn how to cope with, with your life. I'm going to disagree with you a bit on, I think Venus Williams has turned out great. I think Serena's the nut job. Uh, but that's just my opinion. We don't have to, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to debate that. <laughs> what I do want to debate you on a little bit, or I want to throw back in your court, you mentioned Richard Williams. You mentioned Earl Woods. Let's not forget, though, just a week or two ago, you were celebrating LeVar Ball and perhaps his arrival in Chicago, and you've been a, a bit of a defender of LeVar Ball. And look, I think it's great that he's got three sons in the NBA, and I think a lot of people think, well, Look at that. He's got three sons in the NBA. This has worked out perfectly. Who knows how it's going to work out? I mean, because Earl Woods, for how long, looked like the greatest dad in the history of the planet, and Tiger looked like, oh, my God, he'd slayed the world. And then we found out what was really going on behind the scenes, and Tiger wasn't happy. I don't – all these people, it's like that's one of the things that has – baffled me about LeBron James is he he seems to love the spotlight, love the attention. Anywhere he goes, he does things to make sure there's focus and attention on him. And then he's thrown his kids into that spotlight. And maybe I'm just different, but I don't really love the spotlight, and that sounds crazy. I'm hosting a show, and I've been on TV and in the media and been a public figure for a long time, but, but I don't think fame is actually a good thing. I, 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 you, you hear me say it on this show. I've written about it. I think fame is the worst drug on the planet. I think it's more intoxicating and corrosive than any other drug. The burden of being famous and the burden of people watching your every step and placing an importance on on your every step, I think it leads to the kind of burnout that you're talking about. Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka and and the path we're leading these little baseball kids down. Well, you, you said a lot of things there. I mean, I think a lot of people, LeBron is a good example. Some people are comfortable in it from the childhood and and. So, I mean, good for them. If it, if it works, it works. LeVar Ball, 
you know, you're right. We don't know. Maybe the walls will will flake out or, or flip out or burn out themselves. But, you know, what I liked about LeVar Ball was that he was doing things as a family. He was championing his kids. His wife would go with them. They would practice basketball in the morning. They'd go have a picnic at lunch. They'd go have basketball practice again in the afternoon. And he was just a man who was trying to take care of his kids and champion them. So I, I really I really like that that, too. So. You know, the, there's just you're right. We don't really know how it's going to come out, and uh, but that's why I like Lavar. I just Listen, thought he was. A, I, I, go. I, I just think that f- fame makes you start taking actions to service that fame, I, and it, it changes your behavior, and it, it changes who you are. It diminishes any self-awareness, you you hop on Twitter or Instagram, you get all these likes and it makes you, oh my God, look at people are liking and retweeting. Everything I'm doing must be right. And so it's just a delusionary force that we're placing on kids. And I, I tend to agree with you. I think the Little League World Series, when it was on ABC, when it initially started on ESPN, Great thing. It, it, it inspired the movie The Bad News Bears, and it was kind of a fun, lovable thing. Now that there's all this pursuit of money from the yeah. parents, and it's like, what's the woman's name? The kids, Joan Benet Ramsey, the little cha- childhood doll, star, whatever, uh, that the parents built their whole lives around trying to milk that kid for money. That's what all of this is starting to feel like now, and we can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, we've, in a rush, without any strategy, I was for the ending of amateurism, but not the way they've done it. They've done it without any strategy, and I think the name, image, and likeness stuff is gonna start impacting all, it's already hitting high school. We just saw uh, the high school quarterback, top quarterback, leave his senior year of high school, no senior prom, no hanging out with his peers. He signed with an agency, he went to Ohio State, he's chasing money, he's a little professional athlete now. He'll be chasing fame and all the other things that delude you. Greg, uh, good column provoked an interesting conversation, a lot to think. I'd suggest everyone go to theblaze.com and read the column. Good stuff. I, when I, you know, you initially read the headline and go, what's wrong with the Little League World Series? Well, there's actually a lot wrong with it. Read Greg's column. All right, you want great tasting steaks? Go to Good Ranchers. You want great tasting chicken and pork? Go to Good Ranchers. You want great tasting, 100% farm-raised American food? Go to Good Ranchers. I do, and the experience of doing so has been incredible. I'm gonna keep reminding you all of this. I have, because of Uncle Jimmy's COVID, been shaken, and the meat from Good Ranchers, the steak, the chicken, all fantastic on the grill, all great tasting but also all good for me. My relationship with Good Ranchers has been a blessing for me and where my headspace is at right now. I want you to share in the experience, the steak, chicken, pork, seafood. I've had it all, it's all tremendous. It can all be prepared in a way that tastes awesome and also is good for you health-wise. If you subscribe, you will get $20 off and free express shipping. 
Get steakhouse quality for less than $5 per meal. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Fearless. Welcome back. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. We're going to roll down south a bit to Birmingham, Alabama, and speak with noted author Larry Taunton, who wrote a series of tweets this weekend that caught my attention, and they were about he and his wife's decision to homeschool. I got to be honest, it was the first time I had heard of Larry. And then so I went on the internet, I was like, who is this guy? This is brilliant, this is smart, this is the kind of information that needs to be shared. And so I reached out to Larry over social media and then I started doing my own homework and found out Larry has a reputation of being one of the greatest defenders of Christianity, willing to debate any, anybody uh, about Christianity. And so I, I got a little bit more up to speed on Larry's history and said, look, I want Larry on the show because I think this homeschooling deal is a big deal and people need to understand it. So, uh, Larry, uh, welcome to Fearless uh, and, and thanks for joining us. And so I, I want to start with just a little one to get myself up to speed and my audience. And maybe some already know you, but some I don't think will walk us through a little bit of your background where you came from and how you came to your point of view. Yeah, thank you, Jason. It's a delight to be with you. Um, I, uh, I am uh, a product of the South, as, uh, as you've noted. I'm broadcasting to you from Birmingham, Alabama, but uh, I grew up a, uh, an Army brat, so I lived all over the United States, as, uh, as you can imagine. And uh, my background is chiefly academic. And uh, I have to tell you, so much, so many of the ideas that we now see seeping into the mainstream, I was watching, you know, as a, uh, as a graduate student back in the 90s, you know, I'm studying um, Russian history, European history, Marxism. And it was interesting, Jason, because a lot of people were telling me then, this was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that there was no future for me in this field. I mean, Marxism, everybody said, was dead. And, uh, and of course, here we are, um, seeing all this taking place in the culture. But, you know, somebody who'd given my life to Jesus Christ um, in, my, in my youth, um, I felt that any worldview that, that has any intellectual viability ought to be able to uh, withstand some scrutiny in the public arena. So I eventually found myself um, taking on some of the most uh, um, uh, Molotov cocktail throwing atheists um, out there in the public and Muslims and others on CNN, CNN International, Al Jazeera and places like that. It's it. It was fascinating for me to read up on your history and, and it may have said, oh, OK, now I get the connection. I understand why this guy, what he's written here over Twitter, connected with me in such a strong way. And so walk us through your tweets this weekend. What provoked you to go through this explanation of why you and your wife decided to homeschool your kids? And then talk to us about why you think homeschooling may be the direction any responsible parent will have to go to in this current environment. 
You know, Jason, probably like a lot of people who are listening to us, um, I was public schooled uh, in part. I also uh, went to a private school, but mostly I'm a product of, uh, of public education. And we tend to think that what we did is what our children need to. I mean, what was good for me will be good for them. And it was really my wife, Lori, who, um, when my, my son was, was five years old, she said she wanted to try homeschooling him. And at the time, almost this is the early 90s, almost nobody was doing that, Jason. And it struck me as kind of weird. I mean, you know, cults do things like that, not, not normal people. And uh, she began laying out a, uh, a very compelling argument. I mean, first of all, the data shows that homeschooled children, whether or not their parents have a college degree or not, um, are outpacing every other educational group. But also um, the, uh, the flexibility that afforded and things of this nature. So it appealed to me at least to give it a try. I mean, you know, at five, six years of age, I mean, really, what did we have to lose if he fell behind? And, you know, and you have that anxiety, particularly with your first child, you know, is my child tying his shoes, you know, uh, at the same pace as other kids are? Is he, is he walking on time? Is he speaking on, you know, these are all things that you feel anxious about. And so I agreed to give it a, a year, and, um, and I loved it. I, I, my idea of what homeschooling was was so different from the reality. I mean, I pictured him sitting at a desk and my wife standing in front of a chalkboard all day long and this kind of thing. And I, that wasn't at all what it was. But I also say, Jason, that one of the things that, that I quickly realized is how much time in school is dead time. And as my child, uh, my children rather, um, grew a little older and I was watching my friends whose kids were in public or private schools coming home with three and four hours of homes, uh, homework every night, our school day, our entire school day lasted about the same period of time that they were doing homework. And I thought, you know what, they're homeschooling already and they, they don't really know it. <laughs> I think that was one of the greatest points you made is that people think like, well, I don't have time to school my kids. They're at school seven, eight hours a day. I don't have that kind of time. And it, what you're basically saying, when you cut out the fat, when you come out, when you cut out the indoctrination process and yeah. all, all the things they're teaching your kids that have nothing to do with developing their ability to think critically, when you take all that out and just then you can spend the rest of your time, and indoctrination sounds like a bad word, but you can share your world philosophy, your life exactly. philosophy with your kid, rather than some stranger that you, you barely met at a school that went off to some school and thinks a bunch of crazy things and thinks that your six-year-old kid needs to be taught how to masturbate by their teacher rather than <laughs> how to read and write and subtract. You know, you know, Jason, one of the things that's so fascinating to me as I, I consider all this is so many critics, and in those days, we were criticized sharply by our peers, you know, because they took it as an implicit condemnation of their own choices as parents. Oh, so Larry, you think you're better than we are. You think your children are, are better than, than our children. We're, we weren't saying that at all. Um, in the end, um, I believe I will have to give answer to God for my own choices and for um, how I raised my children. You know, they don't have to give answer for that. I do. And, um, you know, so 
we saw the marvelous opportunities that it afforded us as a family rather than our lives surrounding the school, which is what happens. You know, your child's sick. You feel like you have to call and ask for permission for your child to stay home. You're um, constantly going to PTA meetings or some other function. You are uh, spending loads of money, even with public schools. Even though your tax dollars are going there, you're also asked to give to this driver, to that driver, to buy these books and all these kinds of things. And we realized, wow, this this is so wonderful for us as a family because it gave us so much flexibility to do so many things. I mean, I don't know how many children you, you, you have, Jason, but I mean, just think of uh, your children being able to come into the studio and to listen to conversations like this from time to time and learn from dad and see his world and interact with other adults. I mean, that's invaluable teaching. Larry, I don't have any kids. I am involved with my nieces and nephews and things like that. But hey, I was talking with my brother yesterday about you and your tweets. And the first thing he said was something I'm sure you hear all the time. Oh, but would my kids learn how to socialize with other kids? They'll be socially retarded if they don't go to public schools, if they're homeschooled. Your answer to that is? Yeah, I, I get it. It's, uh, it's an argument I also used against my wife, and she very quickly um, shot that argument down. First of all, child psychologist Dr. James Dobson and, and others, you know, people who would share my worldview, point out that most of what children learn from other children isn't worth emulating. And I think if we're honest in our own evaluations of, uh, of our childhood, I mean, and it was in public school that I was exposed to any number of um, very bad things, you know, be it drugs or illicit sex or, um, you know, uh, disrespect. Um, the youth culture isn't really offering children things that are that are worth emulating. Secondly, I would simply say that your children are getting opportunities to interact with adults. Um, and they're also interacting, I mean, especially these days. When we were homeschooling back in the early 90s, there were very few outside options for kids to engage in. These days, homeschooling is, is quite mainstream. There are loads of sports, there are loads of arts and crafts, uh, dance classes, I mean, you name it, that kids can engage in. And they're engaging in them in a way that's a little bit more of a, a controlled environment where you are um, able to shape the way your children interact and in a way that is, uh, that is much more, um, shall we say, respectful and appropriate. So when people say that homeschool kids don't fit in with their peers in public schools, I would say, good. That's not what I wanted from my children. I wanted them to be more mature, and, uh, and they were. How about this, Larry? And what do you say to people that are hearing this going, man, what a financial sacrifice you have to make one parent can't pursue a career in order to homeschool. What do you say to that? Well, um, listen, homeschooling, not everyone can do it. Um, there are other options. There are what are called co-ops where you are. I mean, for instance, I didn't feel that we were uh, we could teach some of the upper math or let's say Latin, which were things that I wanted my children to have. I mean, we had tutors, you know, people who played a role in doing some of those things. But 
homeschooling is uh, is very inexpensive. And I believe that if you want to do it, uh, you can make it happen. I mean, I was a graduate student when we started with Michael, my oldest son. I was make, I was I was teaching at the University of Alabama. I'm making $800 a month as a GTA. Um, I worked a car wash on the weekends. My wife was a nurse and she worked at nights. In other words, it mattered enough to us that we made the sacrifices necessary in order to make it happen. So I think if you want to do it, there are loads of options for you to do it. Larry, I'm going to tell you why I know you're right in terms of it's just when do you want to spill in the money? Because maybe some sacrifices those first 15, 16 years or 12 years of education or whatever saves you money on the other end. Because I can tell you about lawyer fees and all kinds of things that you end up paying for if your kid gets in trouble or goes down the wrong path, knocks up a girl. uh, (laughs) You know, again, not that you're immune to these things uh, because you're homeschooling, but it's just a decision about when you're going to how you're going to invest your time and money and when, because eventually you're going to pay the piper. And I, I think that th- these I, I want to end on this or get your thoughts on this. My, my brother's oldest son uh, went to a Catholic school and, and it was a great experience. St. X in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, great reputation, turns out great kids. And, and I've got a cousin now in Indianapolis that's going to a great Catholic school, Cathedral, and, and she's having great success. And, and what has happened, though, I've questioned my family, and, and, and this is a little bit off the homeschooling aspect, just in terms of educating kids in, a, in an environment that's respectful to Christian beliefs. And, and, and you can get that at Catholic schools and some other religious schools. But as soon as these kids, we're talking about my cousin that is being recruited by Harvard and she's really brilliant and she's being, Ivy League schools are all coming after. And I said to my mother and some of my other family members, I was like, she just had a great educational experience in this faith-based school. How come we're not looking for a faith-based school in college for her to continue this great experience? Why do we have to launch her into the secular educational system? Why do we have to launch my nephew, my brother's oldest son, into the secular school system at a time when I'm just, for me, Larry, this whole, everything that's going on in society and particularly here in America just feels very satanic. And anything we can do to get our kids in a bubble away from that satanic environment, we should be doing. Well, I couldn't agree more with you, Jason. And by the way, let me just say, I love your show and I uh, I love your commentary and uh, what you're doing here. But it depends on what your what your motives are. Um, for me, um, for my wife, Psalm 123 was uh, a real offered some guidance for me. It says children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. I, I love that. And I love it because it, it gives you a picture of your responsibility as parents, that we're sharpening them. We're preparing them like weapons. And one day 
we draw them from the quiver and we aim them at a wicked world and we send them into the world. Um, you know, I, you'll recall from my tweets that I said that my eldest son, Michael, the, you know, the one that we started with in homeschooling ended up going to Yale Law. Now, I will tell you, Yale Law is the pit of hell. I mean, this is the factory of woke ideologies. Um, could he have gotten a better law degree? That is to say one that it was much more friendly to a Christian worldview elsewhere. Absolutely. But by the time that Michael had reached this point, he'd gone to a Christian university. Um, uh, we felt that he had was very well prepared to stand his ground at Yale Law. We wanted him to go there, not just because it was ranked, you know, by all the leftist uh, you know, magazines and whatnot as the, uh, you know, the number one law school for the past 35 years. But we wanted him to go there because we wanted him to penetrate the corridors of power. In other words, we were, we were preparing our children like arrows to send them into the world to begin to undo some of the things that we're doing now. And that meant that he had to have the kind of credentials that enabled him to get into those kind of places. And maybe he, maybe I'm saying too much here in terms of our, our motivations, but we prepared our other children in much the same way. We wanted them to be able to stand, not just simply stand on their own two feet, but to be able to take ground, um, to take it back for Jesus Christ and to reclaim it. And that meant that they needed to be able to know what the world was saying, what those arguments were, and to be able to refute them. Harry, you didn't say too much. You said a mouthful and it was awesome. I, I hope that when we call you again, that you come back on the show uh, because I, I, we need to be spreading this gospel. I, I, everything about my show and my point of view is, is about trying to connect those of us that believe and understand and, and we have to move this country back to one nation under God. And, and that's, we may have differences in beliefs, and, but we believe in God. And so I just, I love what you represent. I love what you said here today. Uh, clearly you're fearless. Uh, keep shooting those arrows. Maybe you and your wife should have a few more kids uh, because we need more <laughs> spiritual warriors out there. Hey, thank you, brother. I appreciate you having me on the show. Love to come back with you. Thank you, Larry. All right. That's it, and that's all for us today. Keep praying for Uncle Jimmy. I think he's doing well. It's not, it's not bleak. We're hopeful and optimistic. Uh, listen to my girl Tamar. She's in my ear right now. I want some freedom. See you tomorrow. Never been alone, I'll break my back for freedom Bless, we are living, get back We are receiving all the seed when we all wanna be free We want freedom